Hi, I'm Dan Jones. And I'm Mia Lee, and we are the editors of Modern Love at The New York Times and co-hosts of the Modern Love podcast. We read love stories for a living. And by love stories, we mean essays written by real people about all forms of human connection. We're talking about everything from first dates to funerals, from sibling rivalries to new love at 85. On our show, we're going to bring those stories to life. We'll hear from the writers and also from the people who are written about. Relationships are the most important things in our lives. And the people that tell us their stories are just so brave, like way braver than I think I am most of the time. Yeah. They're so honest and so vulnerable. And listening to the stories, I feel like you absorb so much wisdom and you get a sense that you're not alone. You can follow Modern Love wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. We hope you'll join us. New episodes are out every Wednesday. From the New York Times, I'm Michael Barbaro. This is The Daily. Today. His presidency has changed the rules of influence in the nation's capital, draining the old swamp and replacing top lobbyists with a group of newcomers and former nobodies. How to get rich in Trump's Washington. It's Thursday, September 28th. The Catholic Church has lobbyists. The Boy Scouts have lobbyists. Apple does. Everybody has a lobbyist. People are having impact on legislation, and indeed the people who are writing a lot of the legislation are people paid by special interests. I disagree with the notion that lobbyists don't have disproportionate influence. That is part of the problem. Lobbyists, donors, special interests. Wall Street spent billions of dollars on lobbying and campaign contributions. We have begun to drain the swamp. So this is our um, our new office in Georgetown. Blue is my favorite color. So <laughs> Nick Confessori, who did you talk to? So last week I spoke to Robert Strick. Everyone calls him Strick. Strick. Type figures. This is an impressionist painting of the U.S. Capitol. He's only had an office in Washington uh, for the last two months, let's say. Oh, because he was where? He didn't have an office. An artist friend of mine did that for us. Strick was, until recently, a pretty minor planet among the stars of Washington lobbying. And even if you were living and working in Washington in politics and government, you'd probably never heard of him. Yeah, so, you know, I had come to Washington in 1995. Dropped out of college, worked on the Hill. I, I had done the traditional trajectory of anybody who wants to work in the government affairs profession. I had been an intern in Congress I was a staff assistant in Congress. Worked for a couple of political consulting firms, did some direct mail. I had worked on the Bush campaign. I'd worked on the Dole campaign. Did some procurement work. He would help clients get contracts and sell things Mm -hmm. to agencies in the the Defense Department. From there, I went and I worked at a public affairs firm. So I I had checked all the boxes. He had run for office once in California himself. Hmm. He didn't win. I had never reached any pinnacle of anything. I was not some guy you'd see on TV. I didn't have a... A massive following of people who knew I was. Again, he wasn't one of the people you read about as a power player on K Street. And to be very frank with you, junior is even probably too high of a term. I was a, you know, I was a nobody. That all changed the night that, that Trump was elected. Strick happened to be friends with a bunch of folks in the Trump campaign. 
he had helped out uh, on the West Coast for them. He had put a couple of Trump people up in his house when they were traveling. Hmm. Uh, he just he's opened his doors to Trump campaign. Yeah, he's just been helpful. And so, you know, after after the Trump victory, the thing that was, you know, that really resonated to me was that there weren't that many folks working for the Trump campaign. You have to remember that the best people did not want to work on the Trump campaign. In fact, a lot of them were never Trumpers. They hated him. They Literally, they, they, the they subscribed to this philosophy called yeah. never They Trump. were like, this guy is a disaster. I don't want anything to do with him. So who did he get? He got, you know, the ragtag guys, he, he, the, the, the fourth and fifth choices, mm-hmm. people who would not have made it onto the campaigns everyone thought was going to win. Mm-hmm. And then he wins. And what I realized was this was going to be a whole new world of people who never were given the same sort of respect. I mean, I, I remember during the campaign that there was this, this, this black book going around where the establishment was putting in names of people who worked for Donald Trump and that you would never get a job in Washington ever again. And that was the kind of Washington that existed that I have, you know, for the last 20 years I've been in Washington. And so what Donald Trump's victory did was disrupt that, that paradigm. So walk me through how Strick's life and career changed after this election. It started with a bottle of wine. Hmm. I'm an avid wine drinker. I, I own a winery in Southern Strick was uh, at the Four Seasons in Georgetown, smoking a cigar in the patio, having a bottle of wine. And this chocolate lab comes over and starts being very friendly to me. And, and dog comes up and sniffs him in the crotch. <laughs> a very, very friendly dog. And he starts talking to the dog's owner. And the owner, we started talking, happened to be the deputy ambassador from New Zealand. And they're chatting, and she's like, you know, we can't get a phone call set up between the prime minister of New Zealand and the president-elect of the United States, which is one of our closest allies. Right. They don't know who to call. They don't know who to call. It, it wasn't because of any slight, and it was because it was just so chaotic. At this point, the president-elect had a lot of people around him who had no experience in, you know, the transition of power. And in fact, that was repeated all around the world. The Australians had to get a phone number from Greg Norman, the golfer. Uh, people were asking pageant contestants in uh, Miss Universe Jeez. if they knew how to get a hold of, of Trump. And so at this time, you had a lot of very nervous countries. And one of the countries that was very nervous was one of our allies, uh, the country of New Zealand. So he says to her, you know what? I know a couple of people. So he calls his buddy who worked in the Trump campaign, and the buddy calls a couple of Trump high command people. And lo and behold, a number is furnished. And this phone call happens between two heads of state. Wow. And Strick says to himself, you know what? I've always had the ambition, and I think I've always had the talent, but now I have the opportunity because I'm one of those people who knows the people who now matter in Washington because they're my old friends. Because Trump did not have a lot of the old establishment types in his campaign— so he was literally rewriting the rules in Washington. So Strick facilitated the initial relationship between the president-elect of the United States and the prime minister of New Zealand, between two countries. That phone call happened because of Robert Strick. So New Zealand says, well, so what else can you do? Hmm. New Zealand had been a signatory to the TPP, the trade agreement, and Trump wanted to pull out of it. They're thinking, a lot's changing, and we need to get in on the ground floor with the Trump administration. And maybe, if we know the right people, we can get in on the sixth floor or the seventh floor, because Trump doesn't care about what order the floors are. Mm-hmm. Strick says, I have an idea. I'm going to help organize a party for New Zealand 
during the president's inauguration ceremonies. Wow. And I'm going to get all of those Trump people who I know, all of the lieutenants and the sergeants and the majors, the kind of middle management of Trump world. I'm going to get them in the room and you can make your pitch. And so that's what happens. They have one of the biggest parties of inauguration hmm. week. Everyone's there. And all of a sudden, New Zealand is on the map in Trump's Washington. And by now, I'm going to guess New Zealand is a client of Robert Strix. A few weeks after that party, uh, they decided to go into business for real and hire Strick. And other embassies were saying, well, how did New Zealand get all those Trump people at the hmm. party? Who are those guys? Who did they hire? Maybe I should hire them. Nick, let me just step back for a minute. We hear the word lobbying all the time. What exactly do we mean when we talk about lobbying? And what do lobbyists actually do all day in Washington? I think people have a perception of it, but not really a reality of it. The lobbyist is the person you hire to make your case to government. That can mean to get you a meeting, to help you get a contract, to fix some application you filed that got jammed up in the bureaucracy hmm. somewhere, to change a regulation, to pass a bill, to write the bill, to get Congress people to pay attention to the bill. You know, it's essentially it is the specialized class of people in Washington that grow like a barnacle on government as hmm. government gets bigger and bigger. I guess so the presumption being that if if you don't have a lobbyist and you don't know how to navigate these halls of power, like you, you know, your hand might be up in the air in the back of the classroom all year and nothing's happening, you're not getting your phone calls returned. Yeah, you can call your congressperson. But aside from that, almost everybody has a lobbyist. Every company, every trade association, labor unions have lobbyists. Uh, there are even some lobbyists who advocate for the poor, although they are vastly right. outmatched in numbers and wealth by lobbyists for other special interests. You know, it's, it's, it's kind of akin to what an agent in Hollywood does for his actors, the same sort of thing applies in Washington, where you're really you're being the agent for these corporations, these issues. Um, so you're kind of the Ari Emanuel of, uh, of your clients. Exactly, sir. Exactly. How much money are we talking about when we talk about money and lobbying? And how much do lobbyists charge and make? I mean, what's the scale of this? Well, it varies. Um, but basically, I'd say a small boutique lobbying firm you know, five guys and a, a secretary is going to charge maybe uh, $5,000, $15,000 a month to work on a project. That's money. Usually every three months, you kind of re-up. The bigger firms, the ones that are, you know, merged with big PR firms or basically law firms that have lobbying practices, they have paralegals. They have big teams of researchers. They have high overhead. Those guys are more like uh, $15,000, dollars $30,000. But look, if you were in high demand – and you have the relationships that matter, you can charge 30, 40, 50, 100, a quarter million dollars. Month, the sky's wow. the limit. And the lobbying industry as a whole is a $3 billion industry. Wow. So we have a team of experts that we've hired. Um, a lot of them come from places like the Central Intelligence Agency, the Department of Defense. And so so tell me about Strix business today. What does, it, what does it look like? How quickly and how big has it grown? I think it has grown hugely. I think he's gone from a boutique lobbying firm with uh, no office to speak of to something that's going to earn tens of millions of dollars hmm. this year. And you got to realize companies have lobbyists, but foreign countries also have American hmm. lobbyists. Private diplomacy. His clients this year have included the, the Czech Republic, New Zealand, 
a uh, trade association based in Korea. Uh, Not bad. Saudi Arabia, which is a huge spender on private lobbying mm-hmm. in Washington. And most recently, Afghanistan. The government of Afghanistan has hired Strick to help them work through all the things that are going to happen with this new administration, the, the, the troop surge, American reconstruction mm-hmm. efforts there, rebuilding efforts. That's a really big business. In some ways, it's it can be bigger than corporate lobbying because the countries pay a lot more than companies. And what we're trying to do is help countries modernize but not westernize. What I mean by that, I think the greatest extension of American power is this idea of free and fair elections, our First Amendment, and really the unbridled, unfettered uh, role of capitalism within our society. And so what we do is... This is a guy for whom a big client before now was the Vinyl Institute. The vi- like, like a trade association for vinyl manufacturing. Right. It's a good client. There isn't anything wrong with that. But now he's working with the president of Afghanistan. He's talking wow. to ambassadors from Colombia. It's a much bigger stage uh, on which to parlay his talents. You know, I use this term, which what I call the, you know, the privatization of diplomacy. And I think what happened after the Trump victory was probably the first fresh look at the presidency you know, maybe since the, you know, the inception of the union and, you know, with, you know, with General Washington. I mean, you really had a guy coming in here, changing convention, bucking protocol, creating a new paradigm so that guys like me who didn't, you know, didn't have the fancy degrees, didn't come from, you know, the fancy uh, law offices or the lobbying firms, had the ability to actually bring democracy directly to the president's doorstep himself. And so I want to unpack um, this concept of the privatization of American diplomacy. What does it mean? Well, when we talk about private diplomacy, you know, you know, typically when we think of diplomacy, we're thinking of governments. Yeah, the United Nations. United Nations, yeah, the the State Department. Uh, But even in normal times, there is a whole realm of foreign policy that is conducted by multinational uh, companies, foundations, Think of the Clinton uh, Foundation, right? They -hmm. were essentially a a kind of a private diplomacy endeavor. They were transnational. But it's even more important now in the Trump era. Trump is essentially dismantling the State Department. Right. Uh, His Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, has not bothered to appoint people to many of the chief policy jobs and diplomatic jobs in his own department. It Mm. is a very small shop. And it's clear that the State Department under Trump is receding in importance as a player in American government. Now, some of that void is going to be filled by the military, and President Trump has surrounded himself with generals and ex-generals. But that's also going to be filled by people like Jared Kushner, uh, people outside the government as well, uh, businesses, consultants, advisors, people like Robert Strick. They're going to do some of the work that the State Department might have done. Hmm. How are the prestigious, fancy, white shoe lobbying firms in Washington, how are they adapting to newcomers like Strick? Are they happy with him? Are they envious of him? I mean, are they able to navigate their way through this the way he did? I think in the early months of the Trump administration, some of these guys were thrown on their backs and their clients were pretty panicked. So one thing they did early on was they would call guys like Strick or they would call guys like Corey Lewandowski, who is uh, 
an unregistered lobbyist who has clients and, and kind of helps them get stuff done in the Trump administration. They would call them for advice. They'd bring him in for meetings. But here's the irony. You got to give President Trump something on transparency. I mean, I mean, I mean, the idea that he's banned all his officials from going back in the lobbying business. I mean, um, but he handed waivers to 100 lobbyists to come into his presidency. Well, right, but he, yeah, but the so I so it turned out that uh, Trump's world was so small that when it came time to fill his administration, he basically kind of outsourced it to industry. So now there are over 100 former lobbyists working in his administration at pretty wow. high levels, and they're working on the same stuff they lobbied on. So if you're in the mining industry or the coal industry or the oil industry, your former guy or gal is now working in the administration. So you don't have to worry about access. You have it. Uh, the usual class of guys got back on their feet. Let me address that, and, and, I, and I want to tell you. So I think there's also a very negative stigma that comes on a lobbyist. And I don't know that most people understand that some of these congressmen see eight to nine to 10,000 bills a year coming through their desks. And so if there's a lobbyist on one side of the issue, there's a lobbyist on the other side of the issue. Lobbyists are usually the most educated on the bills. They spend years and years and years learning the nuances of specific legislation. And lobbying is nothing more than the truest extension of our ability to redress our grievances to our government. So I don't have any problems with experts who are in the lobbying field going into the administration and providing their expertise. I think what I learned in, in covering this subject over the last couple of months is that Trump created chaos. He created a power vacuum. And that disempowered some of the usual swamp creatures for a while. But something had to fill that vacuum. I will tell you this, that... You know, without the disruption of Donald Trump, my firm doesn't exist. I was willing to put my family safety. I mean, I got to tell you, I mean, I lived in California and we put some Trump signs in our yard. They were vandalized. My home was spray painted. Uh, we were threatened by our neighbors. So, you know, there are areas in this country where being a Trump supporter wasn't, wasn't the most viable thing to do for your safety or for your family. Right. And so that actually emboldened me more. Strick seems very defensive about about lobbyists, about his own industry that, that he's now doing wildly successful in, as if he's worried about how he'll be perceived. He's also very aware of the fact that despite Trump having won, being a Trump supporter is not necessarily going to ingratiate him to lots of people. So how does he manage that and how does he talk about managing that? You know, in my conversations with Strick, I find that he doesn't talk a lot about, you know, the president's big policy ideas. So, you know, my support of Donald Trump wasn't ideologically driven. Uh, I, I didn't parse through all of his issue positions. I didn't, I didn't look all of his positions. What I was most interested in Donald Trump was, you know, was he willing to disrupt the way Washington is done? And to be very frank with you, nobody else was going to give me the chance. So I think he likes to think of Trump as a disruptor and himself as among the beneficiaries of that disruption and among the people who are trying to use the disruption to do some good for himself and for the world. Nick, thank you very much. Always a pleasure, Michael.
Nick interviewed Robert Strick for The New Washington, The Daily's other podcast, which comes out every Saturday. We'll be right back. When times became uncertain, Wampley pivoted their technology platform and committed to help small businesses and self-employed workers get approved for their PPP loan. In just a few months, Wampley has helped one million businesses across America to secure much-needed funding so they can continue to stay open and serve their communities. Wampley helps small businesses thrive. Visit Wampley.com to learn more. Here's what else you need to know today. Uh, I, I was looking into it, and I will look into it, and I will tell you personally, I'm not happy about it. I am not happy about it. I'm going to look at it. I am not happy about it, and I let him know it. President Trump is publicly scolding his Secretary of Health and Human Services, Tom Price, for taking more than two dozen flights on private jets for both work and personal trips, which cost taxpayers more than $300,000. On Wednesday, as the president prepared to board Marine One outside the White House, he was asked if he would fire Price. We'll see, Trump replied. And Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell says he will support Roy Moore, the winner of a Republican Senate primary in Alabama, despite having backed Moore's opponent in Tuesday night's special election. Moore, the former Chief Justice of Alabama, who famously hung the Ten Commandments in his courtroom and has called homosexuality a crime against nature, defeated Senator Luther Strange, a more moderate Republican backed by McConnell and a super PAC closely aligned with him. I think it's hard to overstate just how damaging the Alabama race was to McConnell's reputation as sort of an old school political boss. I asked my colleague Alex Burns why Moore's election is seen as so bad for McConnell. So the value of the race, the reason why it was worth spending more than $10 million for Mitch McConnell on this super PAC was to try to send the signal that if you take on incumbent Republicans like Luther Strange, you are going to pay a price for it. Hmm. And in a lot of ways, the lesson that folks are taking out of Alabama is just the opposite, that in fact, you have a lot more to gain by taking on Mitch McConnell than you have to lose. So if you think it's been hard for him to corral the Senate into order so far and to set Hmm. the political strategy for a party led by Donald Trump, it's about to get a lot harder. In a statement on Wednesday, McConnell congratulated Moore and said, quote, Senate Republicans will be as committed to keeping Alabama's Senate seat in Republican hands with Roy Moore as we were with Luther Strange. That's it for The Daily. I'm Michael Barbaro. See you tomorrow. You're still running your business on QuickBooks? More like quicksand. The bigger your company grows, the faster you sync with outdated software. NetSuite by Oracle is the scalable solution to run all key back office operations, no matter how big your company grows. 93% of surveyed organizations increase visibility and control since making the switch from QuickBooks to NetSuite. Right now, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind financing program. Head to netsuite.com daily. That's special financing at netsuite.com daily. netsuite.com daily.